Welcome to K9360. This is uh, here with you every week, most weeks, all the weeks. Um, coming up on our 17th year, which is crazy. Talking about dogs and dog stuff and important things that uh, underpin or guide or shape our life and experience with the amazing dogs who are inhabiting our concentric circles of home, neighborhood, and community. And if you were with us last week, you know that we were talking about concentric circles, the notion of Edward Hall's um, imagination, imagining and description of what he calls proxemics. And uh, proxemics is the study of space and how we use space. And um, Hall, who was writing in the 1960s, talks about public space. Public space is how or when you first become aware that there's another person present. And we go from public space to social space. We share social spaces all the time, right? Sitting in a restaurant is social space, I guess. Public space, social space. Um, And then we go from social space to personal space, right? Um, You can imagine personal space is you and your friends or you and your partner at that table in that restaurant. And from there, uh, we have intimate space. And intimate space is contact. It's uh, everything that intimacy um, portends, right? And for the most part, we don't have too many people, especially as adults, we don't, that we allow in our intimate space. Little kids, eh, that personal space bubble hasn't quite developed yet. Uh, Little kids can often be uh, indifferent, right? They climb up on your lap. They try on your glasses. They want to put their finger in your nose. Um, And it's only as we begin to mature that we begin to understand about space and uh, learn how to negotiate the spaces that we share uh, when, when we want to invite people in and when we want to keep them out, and sometimes there's good reason for that. Uh, I think the entire pandemic lockdown was one giant global investigation, intentionally or unintentionally, an investigation of space and proxemics when we couldn't be with each other. We had uh, an interesting and diverse set of responses to that. I remember our daughter came home. She was in college and uh, they sent her home for spring break and she didn't go get to go back until the following fall because of the pandemic. And for the most part, we inhabited our house as we had prior to her leaving for college in a reasonably respectful and friendly way. But the pandemic, the lockdown amplified all of the stressors of that, of course. And at one point she was down the hall in her room with the door shut, doing her thing. Nobody was bothering her. And she texted me and she said, mom, I just need some personal space. And there's a certain irony to that 
But on the other hand, I completely understand what she was talking about. So let's get back to this consideration of proxemics and what it means for us when we're sharing our home with a dog, our neighborhood with a dog or dogs, and our community with a dog or dogs. There's a guy named Ralph Adolphs, who's a professor of psychology, um, psychology and neuroscience and biology, says, and he's at the Cal Institute of Technology, known as Caltech. He identifies his field of study as social neuroscience. And according to research that he published in 2009, an individual's sense of personal space is actually constructed and monitored by an area of the brain known as the amygdala. That's the part of the brain that is also famous for organizing our emotional response called fear. People don't usually expect to see fearful or aggressive dogs in, say, a therapy dog setting, but objectivity requires being open to that possibility. A dog's apprehension has to be acknowledged early or those fears can escalate into behaviors that look like aggression to human beings. A dog has a limited means for communication and if their body language is ignored or misunderstood, what they have left is their voice or their teeth. And a dog might use a bark or a lifted lip to convey something like, you're in my space and I don't like it. Get back. That's often what, what happens when, like we were talking last week, little kids wrap their arms around a dog's neck to hug him. And the dog, who does not know what hugging is because he is not a primate, he is a canid, says, your face is in my face and you're squeezing me and I don't like it. And that's when we see little kids get bitten they get bitten in the face because their face is somewhere it should not be, right? It's easy enough for us as people to, to understand that a dog who is cornered or trapped might react strongly, but people don't often recognize that even trained dogs perceive that they're trapped when they're on a leash or when they've been told to stay and endure uh, unwanted or unwelcome advances, especially by strangers. Leaving in that sense is not an option for them. So when their more subtle communication is ignored or misunderstood, the perception of being trapped while being cornered or encroached upon or, I don't know, it's um, the actress or the model in the hotel room with the Weinstein guy, right? they are left with few options other than expressing move away in a very direct and for some dogs physical kind of expression. In order to remove perceptions of being cornered, visiting dogs can be trained in ways that make it clear to them that it's acceptable to signal discomfort and that if they feel they must move away, their handlers will accommodate them, right? What we want our dogs to do at home 
if the kids are bugging them, is just to leave. And then the kids have to understand that if the dog gets up and moves away, they are not to pursue that dog. That dog has just made a statement about, I'm not in the mood right now, or you're bugging me. So assessing dogs for specific environments like this is a skill. It involves some experience and keen human observational skills. If assessors, like your coach or your trainer and handlers, that would be you, learn to interpret the dog's signaling within the context of the dog's interaction, they will be able to identify the dog's comfort level and act according to the dog's needs. Assessment is not a once in a lifetime event. Rather, it should occur in moment to moment. And I can think of a dog training student of mine who's, um, who worked really hard to develop this uh, communication system with her dog that can only be engendered, can only be brought about through training the dog, where the dog trusts you and you trust the dog. And it's a silent communication that happens all the time in all kinds of instances. And she was visiting with her dogs, her dog in a dementia ward. And sometimes patients with neurological issues that cause um, Alzheimer's or dementia can suffer a mood change and it can come on rather quickly. They can get angry or upset, agitated, even violent. And my student, her dog was lying on the bed and the resident in the dementia ward was stroking the dog on the shoulder or the head and the dog froze and turned and looked at the handler and the handler immediately calmly and quietly called the dog off the bed just said Rosie come and Rosie quietly got up and got off the bed just as the resident's agitation became visible or tangible. In other words, the dog sensed a shift in the air, a shift in the atmosphere, a shift in the affect of the nursing home resident, the dementia ward resident, and signaled to the handler, something's about to happen here. And the handler, rather than waiting passively to see what will happen and how the dog's going to handle it, when that dog said, hey, something's going to happen here, throw me a lifeline, that handler did so. Immediately called the dog out of the situation and then was able to put the dog on a quiet downstay in the corner and go summon um, someone from the nurse's station to come in and assist the resident with uh, their moment of agitation or aggression or um, whatever happens there, right? That's what we're talking about here. Because even under the best of circumstances, therapy dogs have stressful jobs. Stress is not a dirty word. It merely says something about the body's way of coping with changes or demands in the environment. Right? We all undergo stress and a little stress is good. Um, we learn stuff from stress. We grow literally from stress. Little kids run around. That stresses their bones and muscles in ways that allow them to grow and develop normally. 
So stress is not a dirty word, right? Handlers must realize that visiting environments are and can be stressful, if only because they represent a huge shift from the dog's normal territory or routines. Now, prolonged or frequent periods of stress can start to have deleterious effects, right, on them and on us. They can produce some apprehension, uh, some concern about, okay, there's a predictable feature here and that's starting to make me worry. And when any individual is in a state of anxiety, normal thinking stops. To unskilled observers, anxious dogs appear to be disobedient dogs. Think about that for a minute. Because even in these environments, most humans consider easy. They bombard the senses of dogs who are super sensitive to the environment. Handlers say, oh, we are just visiting in senior living centers or hospital wards. Just? Just visiting? I used to visit, when I lived in Denver, took my collie dogs to oncology ward at Children's Hospital. No one ever said, we're just visiting cancer patients. No one ever said, oh, no big deal. We're just visiting pediatric cancer patients. Consider that from the dog's perspective, there are strong and unusual body, medicinal, and chemical odors. There are sounds of differing voices and tones, overhead announcements. We had to enter through a side door, climb some stairs, ride an elevator. There was always equipment rolling and pumping, vacuum cleaners, maintenance tools, beeping, and I mean, you know, everybody's been in a hospital. There were weird, unknown sometimes, sometimes sort of ominous areas of dark and light, right? We moved from dark hallways into really brightly lit fluorescent interior spaces. I said riding in the elevator, that was a little crazy for some dogs. Stairs, um, doors that move on their own, right? There's in a lot of hospitals, there are doors um, automatic doors. You walk up and it opens. You step through, it closes behind you. Um, sometimes we were in rooms that were uncomfortably warm. Uh, and then the dogs are aware of things that we're not aware of, like the texture of the floor, uh, the changes, carpet, tile. And against that backdrop, we're asking the dogs to encounter groups of unfamiliar people. And in the case of a pediatric oncology ward, little kids who want to reach out or grab, they want to touch and they want to hug all while moving in and out of the dog's intimate zone. And that's not just limited to uh, uh, pediatrics, right? Uh, anything that we imagine about how across the developmental or lifespan. Uh, little kids and very elderly people are probably the most alike, right? And if all this weren't enough, 
dogs are expected to tolerate certain threatening kinds of communication from other visiting dogs. I have some more to say about that in a minute. Or handler behaviors that are inconsistent with what a dog is accustomed to. Or expectations that might be too high for an individual dog in the moment. There's at least one group regionally here who meets with their dogs to go into an institutional setting to visit and it is mandatory that all the dogs interact with each other before they go in to visit and I have absolutely no idea why. I cannot think of any reason why the dogs have to interact with each other prior to going into these therapeutic or um, interventional kinds of environments other than it's a bunch of uncomprehending handlers projecting their own requirements for a, a moment of socialization, a meet and greet before they go off respectively to uh, visit in the institution. And I spoke to the group once in a private setting and they turned their dogs loose, which was an interesting observational experience. Uh, most of the dogs were golden retrievers, but there was one little terrier who was not having it. And she had to set straight all the goldens, which was exhausting to watch on her behalf. Her handler was completely oblivious to all of it. Completely. Anyway, so individual behaviors will vary. But general signs of stress, in case you're wondering, include changes in communication patterns and nonspecific body complaints. Those are human. Shifts in canine communication patterns are detected through their posture, body movement, head movement, eye movement. Nonspecific body complaints that indicate stress reactions. And this is all documented in the research, you guys. Things that we don't associate with non-specific body complaints as stress reaction. Sweaty paws, if you move the dog out their footprints. Salivating, panting, yawning, shaking off like we talked about before. Some dogs will experience hair loss, restlessness, they can't, they can't be still, withdrawal, their, or their muscles will be tense. They may appear, appear suspicious. They may be outright aggressive. Some dogs become hyper alert or um, they get kind of an intensified startle reflex. They're, they're more easily startled where they didn't used to be. Some dogs will just duck behind their handlers. Some dogs will engage in um, compulsive behaviors that are, uh, what would we call them? Like a, a sort of self-directed, almost a self-mutilation. They'll chew a hot spot into their foot or into their hip. 
um, I just worked with a Doberman pincher not too long ago who's a flank sucker, right? The dog turns and that, that little web of skin between the hip and the side of their body, the dog was sucking on it and had turned it into this awful kind of giant red separating mess. Uh, some dogs will demonstrate a change in activity or even a loss of appetite. <coughs> Excuse me. Summer allergies won't let go. People seem to be able to recognize canine behaviors that relate to uh, obvious things like flight or fight as being potentially stress-related. They see that more easily than they recognize those stress-related symptoms that suggest a dog is kind of shutting down or freezing. Stress symptoms are expressed through increases in activity. When they're expressed as increases in activity are referred to as positive stress symptoms and stress symptoms expressed through decreases in activity are referred to as negative Handlers will sometimes remark that their dogs are so much more laid back or so much calmer when their dogs are visiting, where I think the word that we're listening for, the word we're listening to there is more, and it denotes a change from the norm. Because behaviors that relate to the expression of negative stress are beneficial to visiting environments. See the paradox? the dog is, quote, calmer or quieter when what he actually is is completely stressed or overwhelmed. So it's, it's a little too easy for a novice handler or a clueless coach or trainer or program director um, and especially uninformed staff to overlook what's really happening. So what do we do with all this information? Hmm, lots to mull over. I think it's about ethics, right? Ethical handlers, whether they are volunteers, as most therapy dog folks are, or professionals, need to develop time frames, like duration of visit, and policies that allow their dogs to visit or work only within environments that are comfortable for them. And those handlers leave before, not after, but before their dogs develop major symptoms of stress. Mature handlers, ethical handlers, thoughtful handlers continually watch for the subtle signals that their dogs so freely offer and they respect the communication by making adjustments or by leaving the environment altogether. That's hard. That's hard, especially when the handler sees the primary reason for engagement as a social opportunity to interact with other people or to virtue signal on social media I know, imagine that. Or any context where the dog is not, the dog is regarded as a means to a larger end and not thought about, recognized or respected 
as a true teammate in the effort. The dog becomes almost like a, a tool or a piece of sporting equipment, right? Um, I don't know. The, the folks who play pickleball don't worry too much about whether or not their pickleball racket, do you call it a racket, is stressed. I mean, pickleball rackets, tennis rackets don't have feelings. They're not sentient. But your dog is. So stress on your sporting equipment in the form of uh, wear and tear is noticed and addressed. But it's profoundly different than what's happening when your sporting equipment, your means to another end, is a living, breathing creature trying to communicate all the time. Sometimes to people who are uh, oblivious to those communications and sometimes folks who are simply indifferent to them. And, uh, right, that's kind of where we end with this, um, bringing our conversation about proxemics and pressure and stress and all that stuff around in a circle and back to where we started, right? Concentric circles, home, neighborhood, community, circles of proxemics, public, social, personal, and intimate. And it all matters. It matters to them just as it matters to us. And it's worth thinking about, learning about, and working with if that is your um, particular bent. All right, out of time, another Thursday, another adventure. Thanks for being here. So appreciate your listening ear. So appreciate when you reach out with comments, love hearing feedback. Um, Have a great evening. Enjoy your dog. Enjoy your summer. Enjoy the solstice coming up. And I'll see you back here next week. Thanks for hanging out with us on KZUM and KZUM HD, the coolest radio station in the world.